Can we start with quantifying global emissions from the transportation and logistics sector? What's the amount of emissions we're looking at? About a third of all emissions globally comes from the transportation and logistics sector. There have been varying claims anywhere between 25% to 35% of total uh, emissions, depending on how you take it. But let's say it's a third of all the emissions, right? Just as an approximation. In the UK, it's about 22% of all emissions that comes from the transportation logistics uh, sector. And when you say transportation and logistics, we're talking about both moving people as well as moving goods. And that also in- includes road transportation, railways, marine transportation, and aviation. So all of this together is what constitutes this transportation logistics sector. And this is by far one of the most difficult to mitigate. These emissions are by far one of the most difficult to reduce as we go towards net zero. And there are some efforts that are there, but a majority of the transportation and logistics sector depends on fossil fuels. And this needs more of a a system change, a system transformation that needs to happen, rather than just simply saying that I will switch a diesel car into an electric vehicle or saying that instead of this, maybe we can use this fuel or whatever. We need to rethink how people need to move. And we need to also rethink what is the most energy efficient and carbon, less carbon intense way of uh, moving things and moving people. I think that is where the solution lies. It's about understanding and making carbon as part of that decision-making process. Today, that does not happen. Today, we are only talking about how many kilometers or miles of railways we have, how many miles of roads we have laid this year, or how many tunnels we have created this year. And by creating those infrastructure, are we adding to the problem or are we solving that? problem. That's the key here, right? I read more recently, there was a, there's been a, a lot of criticism about the London ultra-low emission zone, right? It expanded all the way up to the M25 in August. So this means that many people will need to pay a daily charge in order to get into the city or even for them to move. Or if they live in the edge Uh, And then they need to basically drive just a few miles into the city. Uh, There's a daily charge involved in this. And that daily charge is only for those vehicles which don't meet a certain barrier. There's a threshold in terms of uh, what is acceptable for a petrol car, what is acceptable for a diesel car. But people are only talking about these car journeys, I think the way to think about is, do you really need that journey in the first place? Secondly, if you definitely need that journey, is it possible to walk down if it was too close, if it's just a, just less than a mile maybe, 
I can walk maybe a mile each way. That is still all right. Or if I can use a bike, easy. I can do even four or five miles very easily. The other option is a public transport that is already available. So maybe I walk five minutes either side, but I take a bus in order to go to my destination. That could be the option, right? And again, it calls for when you go and expand this kind of a scheme and all that, it calls for expanding these networks. So how you can walk, how you can cycle, how you can use public transport, maybe buses, trains, etc., in order to complete those journeys. And for that, we need a very good understanding of how those journeys take place today. Yeah, uh, as a person that growing up needed buses to go to school, that's where my mind would naturally go. And just like in my case, people these days need to use their cars for very essential journeys, like to go to school or commute to work, as the public services in many areas are not efficient enough. Yeah, and that's probably being, uh, the major factor. People can't buy anywhere close to their workplace in London. So in there a you number go. of cases, you have to commute from maybe 20 miles out or 30 miles out and whatever, right? Or even further. I know a few people who actually commute like 100 miles into London, right? So yeah, that's the reality of things. What I wanted to add here is that when I say fossil fuel is the biggest part in this, we'll have to understand we've got four parts to this transport transportation and logistics sector. We've got road transportation, which is, I would say, nearly 75% dependent on fossil fuel. There's a small part, which is electric. The reason why I say about 25% not dependent on fossil fuel is a number of these journeys are actually done by foot and by bike and electric bikes and whatever, right? Secondly, we've got rail. The rate at which electrification has reached uh, the UK railways is that we have almost 66% of all our commuter routes and long-distance routes electrified. We still have a number of sections which are diesel operated, which means that there is fossil fuel being used as part of the rail. When people say rail, you can cut a lot of the carbon. I think a lot of that dialogue comes from the fact that you're sharing this infrastructure with maybe 500, 600 other passengers, and you're making that journey along with all of them. But the reality is, how does that electricity come in? Even if you travel a train that was electrified, how does that electricity come? How much of that is based on renewable energy sources? That's a key question to ask. Shipping, a lot of the pollution from the shipping industry, marine transportation, is from the use of um, uh, heavily polluting fuel, which is used as part of ship's engine. There are some developments there, right? But it still takes a lot of effort. And again, over there, we have to see there are like different types of ships being used. But the one that is highly polluting and the one that is more prominent are basically the container ships, right? Mm-hmm. 
when we say ships a lot of the dialogue in the media comes to cruise holidays and then they start talking about oil tankers going here and there these are there but these are very small in number right the the biggest number there is basically container ships which are carrying your cargo from mm-hmm. one location to the other in order for you to get your routine supplies and whatever right i think that is where the bigger issue is right similarly if you go to aviation right we we're talking about aviation being uh, say a pollution a cause of pollution of course it is it is a cause of pollution they use one of the, the most polluting fuels as part of the um, aviation fuel basically the jet fuel is one of the most polluting and it takes a lot of fuel to burn in order for the flight to take off and for it to fly all the way and the key here is if we still retained a number of the long haul flights and we are only going to replace the short haul flights and maybe a number of domestic flights if we just did that the aviation industry can cut about 50% of its emissions 50% yeah. we will keep all the long haul flights if you want to go all the way from london into new york yeah keep that flight on right i'm not going to change it at all mm-hmm. keep it right there but if you're flying from here to uh, edinburgh i want to cut that and i want to replace it maybe with a train journey Makes or sense. if i want to fly uh, out of edinburgh and straight off to new york i want to keep that journey because what i want to do is i want to avoid the short haul flight from edinburgh into london and then flying out from london because the aviation industry has worked in a hub and spoke model so they want short haul flights coming into their hub and then the long haul flights going out from there right this system transformation will mean that this hub and spoke model is not going to work anymore right you need direct flights you need those long haul flights and you need to cut many of the many of these short haul flights that are there and again somebody can come in and say uh, the single aisle airbuses that we have a very energy efficient yeah i know that i know that i'm not saying no to it but there's just too many of them that is the problem it's not that they are individually energy inefficient it is just that there is just too many of them can you replace that with trains can you replace that with high speed rail for instance uh, which can take you point to point and again rail does a lot of the heavy lifting because you can go from city center to city center that does a lot of the job if you can do that 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 reduces a lot of the issue but again uh, another statistic that i want to add here is there is sustainable aviation fuel which is essentially an ecologically produced bioethanol which can replace kerosene that is used as the jet fuel and sustainable aviation fuel as per the manufacturer as per airbus themselves can be mixed up to 50% planes you can mix up to 50% of sustainable aviation fuel 
the key here is how is that sustainable aviation fuel produced? It is biomass-based produced. You don't want to destroy food crops in order to produce this. You don't want to destroy the corn that would have been used for food. You don't want to destroy that and produce this. But there should be other ways in which you can produce this and substitute it, mix it with the kerosene so that the emissions fall without changing the plane itself. So basically, what we're saying is the whole world depends on transportation of goods. It's something that we cannot just eradicate from our life because this is how, because of globalization, basically. We move around, but also we have goods coming from China, for example, going through the Suez Canal, reaching Europe and other uh, markets around the continent. That is staple of our society. We cannot get rid of that. So, the, we, But we can change the question. How can we make fuel itself more sustainable? I think it's interesting to also always state that energy itself needs energy to be correct, produced. Correct, correct. Yes, it does. <laughs> That's a very fundamental question. And it's probably one of the most overlooked questions as well, especially when it comes to you know electric vehicles or anything that we think that because it's electric is also automatically green. It might just not be the case. And this is how we get to, we extensively talked about anything that is electric and electric vehicles, but I think we are getting into a topic that is probably new to many, which is the one that you were just mentioning now, which is uh, the uh, e-fuel. So basically fuel that is derived from, what do you say, like corn? Or can we damage that a yeah, bit more yeah, yeah. and explain it yeah. better? That is bioethanol, which is a component of our petrol. Currently in the UK, we already mix, I think, around 10% of bioethanol as part of the normal petrol that we get. I think it's called E10 petrol. That comes from biomass, from plant material that is discarded and it's fermented. And then they basically produce bioethanol, which can be mixed with petrol. Bioethanol can also be used as part of shipping. So a company called Musk, which is a large uh, container ship shipment company, company. they uh, brought in something called as a dual fuel ship, meaning it can use the regular marine fuel, but at the same time, it can also use green ethanol or bioethanol, as we call it. So... How is it produced? That's the key here. So are you going to destroy food crops in order to create this uh, fuel? Or is there a substitute mechanism through which some waste material can be used? And is it economically possible to replace these fossil fuels with these bioethanol sustainable fuels? Same case with you know, aviation as well, right? You've got sustainable aviation fuel which can be mixed with the regular aviation fuel. But again, how do, we, how do you produce it? More recently, uh, there's been a test flight across the Atlantic by Virgin Atlantic who ran a plane completely on sustainable aviation fuel. Oh, so wow. Okay. It is possible. But what is the cost? Cost is a factor here because fossil fuels are actually subjected to a lot of subsidy. A lot of this is because of the fact that they, when a private company approaches the government in order to develop a new fossil fuel facility, it's basically a private project. 
but they get a lot of the subsidies as part of that project so their idea would be that when we start you know developing the product developing the project by the time we start making money out of it it's going to be 7 to 10 years by when we can actually start making money and i need to make sure that i can be on this project i can continue to make money for the next 50 years afterwards so these commitments are there and that is the reason why kerosene or petrol or diesel etc are priced in a certain way if you take out these subsidies you will immediately find that the price difference between a sustainable fuel and our current fossil fuel based energy source that we use like petrol or diesel or aviation fuel the price difference is not much it is the subsidies it is the long term extracted guarantees with the state which are major factors into the pricing right and that pricing does not take into account the effect of burning that fuel meaning the pollution is basically left to society at large to manage you can set some pollution standards like you've got the euro 6 standard for passenger vehicles so with that what happens is that's the amount of emission that you can have in terms of carbon dioxide nitrous oxide carbon monoxide etc but is there a zero emission standard is there a pricing in terms of you know for you to emit so much you got to pay so much no it doesn't take that we pay for the fuel that we put into the car but we don't pay for the emission that we emit out of the tailpipe how can this be compared with a sustainable fuel because you got to level that that playing field in the first place so only then you can then yeah. do a you know reasonable price comparison and then say okay that sustainable aviation fuel was 1 pound 50 petrol 1 pound 56 okay there you go that's the comparison in the current scheme of things the way it looks like is petrol is 1 pound 56 sustainable fuel is 5 pounds who wants to pay that in order to get it right and a lot of that comes down to policy how you want to price it how you want to decarbonize etc a lot of it comes down to policy and how much of that policy direction can be influenced when we are in a high interest rate regime and the outlook is that a possible recession etc so which government wants to take that that sort of a move cut subsidies impose taxes onto maybe windfall taxes onto the oil and gas industry who wants to do that no and, and we also need to understand the oil and gas industry uh, let's keep coal out of the picture for just for some time when i say fossil fuel coal is also a fossil fuel but let's keep coal out of the picture and let's just take oil and gas into this when we look at prices that are on the uh, on the telegraph in the newspaper and whatever you see that and say okay crude oil is so much we just see that as one number what we don't realize is 
the products of crude oil are everywhere in our life. It's everywhere in our life. And when that price goes up, even by $1, it is impacting us as the cost of fuel, the cost of energy that we consume, or the cost of all the food prices, cost of all the, all the consumables that we have, even entertainment goes up. Everything starts increasing when there is an increase in the, uh, increase in the price of oil. That's the sort of central role here. Again, I also want to talk about the role of uh, the fossil fuel industry in the transition process as such, right? We can either see them as, uh, as the adversary or we can see them as a partner. I would say it's better to see them as a partner. And I would say a lot of people wouldn't like me saying that. You've established the connection and you've said fossil fuel is part of all our lives and blah, blah, blah. And then you say fossil fuel prices determine all this. Why do you still say you want them as a partner? The reality is that we can't let go of our uh, usage of fossil fuel just like that. Yeah, this point has been touched upon in several episodes. Uh, Previously, we emphasized that suddenly discontinuing the use of oil is not feasible. Such a sudden shift would cause significant societal and lifestyle disruptions, which is a difficult reality to accept, but something we must confront. Moreover, as you highlighted, access to renewable energies may currently be prohibitively expensive without intervention from institutions to create incentives. This poses a challenge particularly for factories and anyone involved in fuel consumption. Without more cost-effective methods of producing such energy, there is little financial viability in choosing renewable sources, leading us to default back to fossil fuel. In essence, we continue relying on fossil fuel as the most affordable means to sustain our economies. Burning fossil fuel becomes the go-to strategy whenever financial needs arise. And we see this in the world we live in. Like, let's look at some of the, you know, biggest Asian economies like China or India uh, consuming a lot or, you know, the US just becoming the first oil producer now as they are in need a lot of resources and energy. Financially, it's understandable that institutions and private companies gravitate towards fossil fuel. Addressing the issue, though, is crucial and the focus should be on finding solutions. However, A few public or private institutions currently possess the capacity for a direct transition from fossil fuel to renewable energies. And so considering your suggestion, the potential solution may lie in partnering with fossil fuel companies to facilitate the transition. And this is not to support those companies per se, but rather to align with the greater good and the most logical course of action on a larger scale. I think it is a, it's not a supply-side problem, looking at it, right? It's more of a demand-side problem as the fossil fuel industry wants to project it, right? So the way they say is that I'm producing crude oil because you're asking for it. But the reality is you made me a slave to it because you started supplying it and you started supplying it for cheap. 
now mm. we've got to a situation where we can't be your fossil fuel that easily and you can't go shouting just stop oil and whatever and protest and then go back home in a diesel car so that's just not possible the reality is there's got to be middle ground and that middle ground mm. can come by leveraging the fossil fuel industry they are cash rich they can make investments they have the ability to influence policy they have the ability to influence geopolitics why don't we use them as a partner in this transition how do we use them as a partner get them to invest first of all into producing sustainable fuels so e fuel being one excellent example so if we capture uh, carbon dioxide from the manufacturing process various industries or maybe even chemicals maybe even fossil fuel industry themselves you capture the co2 mix it with water and hydrogen under pressure and there is electrolysis that is involved using the renewable energy you can then convert into a fuel that can be used to replace petrol you don't need to change the car okay you you continue to produce fossil fuel but not at the exact same rate at which you are producing right now you take a part of it you produce hydrogen you capture the emissions from there use it as part of the electrolysis process and then you create e fuel out of it a good example is there are a couple of clusters couple of industrial clusters in the uk that are experimenting on this it is still an experiment while people like to call now carbon capture as a new technology it's not new technology the reality is it's almost 50 years old 50 years 50 old. yes it is 50 years old the first carbon capture plant was by state oil and what they did was they found that there's a certain gas field was when they explored it they found that anhydrous polluted with co2 so when you pull out the gas the co2 also comes out along with it so they captured the co2 and they used that co2 to pump all the way into the earth and store it as carbon many i think 1000 meters or i think 2000 meters below the ground right and that plant is still in operation so if somebody comes and tells us that carbon capture is a new technology we haven't even heard of it we've just seen some experiments sorry guys you got to you got to see what state oil did 50 years ago so is it new technology the answer is no i think i think what we need is we've got to look at decarbonization with the existing technologies those that are already available and available at scale we've got to use the fossil fuel industry as a partner in this process get them to adapt their ways adapt their outputs to a new economy i think that is the way out here so in conclusion we said that logistics and transportation are responsible for about 
one third of global emissions and that we can't really live without our supply chains and without moving people and goods around the world. So we need to look at strategies and systems to make all this more sustainable. But we have to also be careful not to shock our society by just closing the oil tap from one day to another. Hence, transition plans become fundamental. Thank you so much for today's insight. We'll dig into e-fuels in the next episode. See you there.